And today, we'll be starting off our series with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So, besides the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is documented in all four gospel accounts. So, we were talking about this as a staff earlier uh, this week about it. And, right, the stories are the same in all of the gospels. But... The writers are just writing from their unique perspectives, right? You might find different things that a particular writer emphasizes, but the story is the same. (laughs) For those listening online, uh, you can't hear what's going on, and that's just fine. (laughs) But, so for example, with these four different gospel accounts, if if we just do this for uh, how the different writers have their nuances, this is an example. So, I could run across the stage here, and I could do a backflip onto the, the ledge right there with all the plants on it. And then I can do a cartwheel to the other side of the ledge. And then I can do a backflip back to that, that ledge right there at the end of the ledge. And then I can do another front flip onto the stage. And I can do a cartwheel across the stage here. And while that's highly improbable for me to do, that would be a miracle in itself. But let's say I actually did that. And I asked four people in this room to document what happened, they would all have their unique ways of writing what I actually did. One person might document that this lanky, tall guy almost smashed his head into the TV while trying to attempt a dangerous feat of landing on the ledge. And another might say that he came incredibly close to the TV, but managed to pull off the stunt performed. And then another might say that the worship pastor tried to integrate dance into the worship ministry at MPCC and failed epically. (laughs) But the point that I'm making is that throughout their recounting of this miracle through their accounts, through each process of each account, the Holy Spirit was working through the writers of the Gospels through their own unique perspective. I'll say it again. The Holy Spirit is working through the writers of the Gospels, through their own unique perspective. And today we will be reading the account that is in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we begin, let me just open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for blessing us with it. I pray that you would speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would see your words revealed to us through your scriptures. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to invite everyone to open up their Bibles to Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. The text will also be on the screen as well. So starting at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, 
he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So, looking at the context of the story, it lands itself right after John the Baptist was beheaded, and then right before the story where Jesus walks on the water. His popularity in the area has risen a lot. There are large crowds that are following him from town to town, as we read in verse 13. He is this popular figure that people want to learn more about. They have seen or heard of previous miracles that he has performed, or they have either heard his phenomenal teaching firsthand, or they've heard other people's accounts of Jesus, this phenomenal teacher, this one who speaks with authority, right? This entire region is in a buzz over this person. Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, the one who speaks with authority, right? So if they had Twitter back in the first century, Jesus would be the first thing trending on Twitter. Yes, I just went there. But with all this popularity and all this hype, the religious leaders of that time do not like them. They've already labeled him a blasphemer. And so they devise a plan to kill Jesus. They succeed. But spoiler alert, this leads to the greatest of miracles, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But with all this hype and all this popularity, with all the wonderful things that Jesus is doing, there is opposition. We see this right before the passage we're studying today with the story of the death of John the Baptist. So King Herod was the ruler of this region, but he was kind of more of a puppet king because Rome ruled this entire region. John the Baptist had called out King Herod for his scandalous living. So King Herod had divorced his previous wife to marry his half-brother's wife. So John, yeah, yeah. So John the Baptist had been calling out King Herod on this, and he kept saying that what he was doing is unlawful for King Herod to be doing. But so what King Herod wanted to do is that he wanted to have John the Baptist killed because first, it was an embarrassment, but second, it also threatened his political security. If the scandal grew, he could have been kicked out as king. But the people regarded John the Baptist as a prophet, so they were afraid to kill him. So he had John put in prison, and we can see that he was in prison for a while with the previous chapters in Matthew. But the story before the feeding of the 5,000, don't worry, we're going to get to it. But King Herod at the birthday party for his stepdaughter, he made an oath to do whatever she asked. Her mom prompted her, right? This is King Herod's person that was divorced and then confusing situation. But anyway, so it was her mom who prompted her for the head of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist was killed. So that's the story leading up to the story that we're about to read. So this is why at the beginning of verse 13, Matthew writes that when Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. It doesn't say the reasons why that he withdrew from 
that he withdrew privately from the crowds in the text, but there can be multiple reasons for one might think that he might do that. But I think that the main reason why they went to a solitary place is that they're grieving the loss of John the Baptist and are wanting to get away from the crowds to process all these things. Well, this isn't the central point of this passage. It is important to note that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus experiences emotions like we do, and we see that in multiple of the gospel accounts. So while they were out on the boat, remember, there are these huge crowds that are following them, and the large crowd is following to wherever they are heading. So they are tracking where Jesus and his disciples are headed. So they probably use some GPS tracking device of some kind. Just kidding, that was a joke. They, they were probably just, they just probably watched where the boat was going and then they just headed in that direction. But in verse 14, it says that Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. The main point here is that Jesus' ministry, the work that Jesus does, is fueled by his compassion for people. Jesus' ministry is fueled by his compassion for the people. And it's an, it, it is interesting that it's almost a side note of the entire passage, that he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And you can tell in uh, verse 15 that Jesus was healing people all day. And it's just crazy that it's just kind of a, a side note in the passage. He's like, oh, he, he healed their sick, Right? There are so many people who were healed that day, who were healed of their sicknesses, and their lives were changed forever because of the work that Jesus did on that day, right? But this is just a small snippet, a small glance of the greatness of our God, amen? So I just want to camp on this idea that Jesus had compassion on them. In the account in Mark, it says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cares for every single one of his sheep. Jesus cares for every single person. Right? This is what we're reminded of in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. What does the shepherd do when one of his sheep is lost? Does he say, good riddance, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Or, oh, you're, you're just too far gone. Your sins are disgusting. It's just going to make the other sheep upset because they, just, they don't want you here. But what does the good shepherd do? Right? He goes out and he finds that lost sheep and he brings that sheep back home. Right? For there, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. We are all lost sheep at one point. And Jesus just does not leave us there in that lost state. He finds us, right? He calls us to repent of our sins. And he calls us to turn from our sinful behaviors and calls us into the newness of life that is found only in Jesus. Compassion on his people, right? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, that he gave his own and only son, and that those who believe in him will have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him.
Just as Jesus shows compassion to us, and through compassion that his ministry flows, that is the way that the church should operate. Where it is fueled by compassion to share the gospel here and to share the gospel everywhere else. Right? All of that is missions. Compassion for those who are lost and do not know Jesus as their Savior. That is why we have it in our mission that it is a priority to connect others with God. This compassion should be baked into everything that we do, into every single aspect of what we do here as a church. And it is a miracle within itself that God would choose us as ambassadors, as his representatives, to share his word with others. We're going to move on to verse 15. As evening approached, right, this is just emphasizing this fact that they have been out there all day doing this. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Uh, send, Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. I don't necessarily think that this is an outlandish request of the disciples, right? To get a better gauge of how large the crowd actually is, we take a look to verse 21, and it says that the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the number 5,000 does not include the women and children. Some scholars estimate that there could have been more around 15,000 or more people there on that day. And just to give you a size comparison, how many of you have been to the Target Center or the Excel Energy Center? Mostly everyone in here. All right, for a frame, of rest, a frame of reference, here's a picture of the Excel Energy Center right here. So that is the size of group of people that we're talking about here. So when the disciples say, uh, Jesus, we should probably send these people away because it's, it's going to take a lot to feed all these people. And all these people are going to need food soon because they've been here all day and we've been out all day doing this. And so in the account found in John, the disciples say that it would cost a half year's wage for people to have just one bite of bread. So it would cost roughly maybe $20,000, $30,000 to feed all these people just one bite of bread. And looking at this stadium, right, to feed everyone and the stadium for like twenty dollars to $30,000, Everyone might get maybe a bite of a soft pretzel. That sounds pretty good right now. You know, a soft pretzel with some nacho cheese. I'm sorry, it's right before lunch. I apologize. But to fully feed this size of group, I talked to some experts in the room here, right? And it was estimated that it might cost around sixty dollars to $80,000 to feed a group this size, right? Depending on the numbers. And that's based off of like $4 a meal. So that's on the conservative side of things, right? It would probably cost around well over $100,000 to feed a group this size, right? You can see the picture and see how large this number is. But the disciples realize that it would be crazy to try to feed a group this size. Of course, Jesus tells the disciples that the crowds do not need to go away and that the disciples are to give them something to eat. So when Jesus told the disciples this, I just can't imagine the look on the disciples' faces at this moment, right? They probably just looked at each other with dumbfounded faces like, uh, what did he just say? Did he just say to feed this entire group? Uh, Jesus, we only have these uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. 
And so Jesus told them to bring me what you have. This is kind of reminiscent of the Exodus story when the Israelites were out in the desert and God provided them with manna. But we're just going to pause there. The, the disciples are in a situation where they are clearly in a spot where they are facing an impossible task. They're instructed to feed this massive group of people where they have five loaves of bread and two fish, right? Look at this picture. Five loaves of bread, two fish. The math isn't working in our favor right now. But and it's not like the loaves of bread are in different size. They're not a different size back then than they are now, right? The bread's not the size of trucks or pianos or something like that. And the fish aren't whales. Clearly, they're handing them to each other. But Jesus tells the disciples to bring what they have and to trust him and to trust the provider. Just like the disciples, sometimes we are faced with situations that pop up where difficulties arise. And it's not always going to be, Lord, how am I going to feed all these people? Right? Sometimes it's going to be, Lord, how am I going to get through this cancer diagnosis? Lord, is my prodigal child ever going to come back? There can be plenty of life circumstances that we go through. Many questions that we can ask that doubt God's faithfulness to us and not trust he will provide for us. But just as we sang earlier, we know that despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can trust the way maker, we can trust the miracle worker, and that we can trust the promise keeper. God knows our needs and he will provide us for our needs. We bring to him what we have and he will always come through and he will always be faithful. We bring to him our five loaves of bread and our two fish and he will always meet our needs. Right? He might not give us all our wants and the desires of our hearts, but we know that he knows what we need and he will provide that. And sometimes you'll hear people on TV say that, if you pray hard enough and you pray enough that you will really get the car that you really want and that if you pray hard enough that you will get the house big enough that you pray for, right? And it's kind of like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car kind of speakers, right? And some, some people believe that financial blessing and physical well-being are always at the center of God's will for believers, that God wants me to be financially rich and have material things, and that I will never be, that I will always be healthy and that I will never get sick. This is known as the prosperity gospel, and you'll find many of these preachers on TV. And it's dangerous because it just skews scripture. A way you can identify it is that if you're watching the preacher and they say, if you give $100 to our ministry, God will bless you and give you $1,000 in return. First, they're misinterpreting 2 Corinthians 9. Second, it's just the wrong motive. We don't give and then expect that God's going to increase our profits by $1,000 or 1,000%. We give to God and he will bless us and he will continually provide our needs. And we're to give with cheerful hearts and not reluctant or out of compulsion. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it does not say that Money is the root of all evil, but it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. 
Money is just merely a tool. It is not inherently a bad thing. And God has afflicted certain people with affluence, and he calls us all to extreme generosity. And we know that when we are going through times of suffering, that Jesus is there with us. As we read in Psalm 23, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and staff comfort us. Jesus provided the people that day with their daily bread, and he satisfied them with their daily needs. And we pick up in verse 19. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So looking at Jesus, we should emulate what Jesus does and being thankful that God has provided for us. Something that I heard, I can't remember where, but every time you wake up or every time you go to bed, think of five things that you are thankful for, right? It's just amazing how quickly your your perspective will change when you just think of five things that you are thankful for, right? It could be as simple as, thank you for saving me from my sins, Thank you, God, that I have a warm place to sleep in. Thank you that I have access to clean drinking water. Thank you for my family and friends. And thank you for the privilege that I have to share the gospel with other people around me. Right? It just, changed your mind. It just changes your mind to understand that God is our ultimate provider and that it really does change a complaining and grumbling spirit very fast. So, Jesus breaks the bread, and what does he do next? He gives the bread to his disciples to pass out. Let me repeat that. He gives the bread to his disciples to pass out. Right? Some of you are thinking, Chris, why, do you keep, why are you repeating that? Right? I've handed people things before. But remember, Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. He has just healed all the people of their sicknesses and ailments. Jesus has total control of the physical realm. He could have just snapped his fingers and bread and fish would just kind of appear, kind of like the dew, like in the back in Exodus, like the dew just, the manna just appeared with the dew, right? But instead, it is a miracle that Jesus chose his disciples to participate in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is the provider in the story but he provided his disciples to participate in the miracle. And everyone ate, and everyone was satisfied. And after all they ate, there were still leftovers in the 12 baskets. They did not just have one small bite, but everyone ate until they were full. Right? Remember, this could be upwards to around fifteen to 20,000 people, the seating capacity of the Excel Energy Center and the Target Center. Jesus is truly the miraculous provider in this story. Right, and I'm not sure how it all happened, how it all unfolded, that was it the disciples that just kept reaching into the baskets and the baskets were just continually filling as they were pulling it out? Or did Jesus keep like reaching into a basket and handing the disciples the bread? I don't know. Like, and I don't think that, that's not the point of the story. But I think at, at this point, 
I think it's just a focus, is that Jesus used his disciples in this miracle and empowers them to help carry it out. He didn't need his disciples to carry it out, but he used them to show them that they have importance within the ministry. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, no, 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 Peter, no, don't, don't, don't touch this. You're just going to mess it all up. Don't worry. I got it. I got it. But you can see in the other gospel accounts that he gives them specific instructions of how the people should disperse it to the people and then sat them into groups of hundreds and fifties. But Jesus empowers us with the Holy Spirit to do the ministry here at Maple Plain Community Church. He empowers us to do the ministry around the world. This story is a fitting example of how the church should operate and how its ministry should operate. Right? I see my role here as a pastor to help equip and to empower people and leaders within their various roles that they here have here at the church. Right? Leadership is not doing about everything yourself, as clearly Jesus could have done everything himself. But it's to bring people along with you, get them plugged in, and equip them with the necessary tools to have them succeed within their role here. That should be the goal of every leader here. It's to equip and to empower, and everything is fueled by the tons of volunteers that we have here. And it helps us to carry out the work that God has called us to do here to help connect with God and to connect with others, to help connect others with God. But today, I want to close this today on uh, a story of a miracle that has happened within, uh, not within my life, but this within my family's life, of a true story of my grandparents, right? So my, my grandfather's name is Ken. He's with Jesus now. My grandmother, uh, Anita, is still living today. And uh, it has a story. It's also with my Aunt Janet as well. Right? The story was, it was written in a book, but then also it, was also it was also featured on Oprah as well. This is like back in the early 90s. But anywho, so this is the context for the story here. But so this is out of the book. This is a true story from my, with my grandparents. It's called The Wonder at Wrigley Field. Kenneth, my grandfather, and Anita Steinke reared their six young children, it became obvious that Anita was the spiritual one in the family. I had never been more than just a Sunday Christian with just a surface relationship with God, Kenneth says. And he saw no reason to change. But Anita prayed frequently that God would reveal himself more deeply to her husband. One afternoon, Kenneth and Anita took the family to Wrigley Field to watch the Chicago Cubs woot woot, play the Cincinnati Reds. The Steinkies attended games often and considered themselves faithful bleacher bums. Right, That's part of the crowd that overlooks the outfield. Bleacher seats were cheap and families could bring picnics. And there was always the chance that a bum might catch a home run ball. Today, the Steinkies sat in the right field bleachers with four-year-old Janet, the youngest, directly in front of Kenneth. Janet was frail and small, but she enjoyed baseball, Kenneth says. Everyone was relaxed and upbeat. Suddenly, in his mind, Kenneth heard the words, Janet is going to be hit in the temple with a fly ball. 
If you don't take action, she'll seriously be injured or killed. Kenneth sat absolutely still and astounded. The message was so firm and so compelling that he never thought to doubt the truth of it. It it sounds strange, but I was convinced it was going to happen, he said. How how could he prepare? He, He could take Janet away, but the voice didn't tell him when the ball would come. Did did it make sense to confine himself and his daughter in the car or walk with her around the field for several hours? Any other kids would be inconsolable if he insisted that they go home, especially on such a flimsy-sounding evidence. But to Kenneth, the command was anything but frivolous. What what if he rehearsed for a fly ball? Slowly, unobtrusively, Kenneth slid his forearm in front of Janet's head. Yes, his arm was big enough to shield her, but could he react fast enough? For the next several minutes, Kenneth drilled himself, shoving his arm quickly over the front of Janet's head, and then releasing it, and then shoving it again. (laughs) Nearby fans began to notice at his movements. Several looked at him strangely, Janet was perplexed too. What are you doing, Daddy? She asked. I can't see. The crack of Pete Rose's bat was almost anticlimactic when it came just a few minutes later. The long drive ball shot across the length of Wrigley Field like an arrow, picking up speed as it flew over the wall right towards Janet's head. And in that split second, At the sound of the crack of the bat, Kenneth knew exactly what to do, throwing his left arm across his daughter's forehead just as he had practiced. He used his right hand to shield his own face. The ball struck his arm with terrible force, bounced on and off of Anita, and then disappeared into the crowd of the pile of people. Kenneth looked at his left arm, and it was already starting to swell. But Janet was safe, her little face still whole and perfect. Kenneth stayed up late that night. His arm throbbed, but it wasn't the pain that kept him awake. What in the world happened today? Right? So it's awesome to tell this story because this is a story that I constantly heard growing up as a child. Right? And shortly after that, uh, my grandfather became a more devoted follower of Jesus. And as I reflect on that, my grandparents are some of the most faith-filled people that I know. And as I look at my family, my aunts, uncles, and cousins, almost every single one of them is a committed follower of Jesus. And I can say that it was out of the praying faith of my grandmother, praying for her husband and God answering her prayer that happened in the miracle of Wrigley Field in Chicago, right? And this is just a larger part of their story And it's just a part of the reason why I'm standing here today and seeing the faith that my grandparents had in Jesus, right? So God works in crazy and mysterious ways, but miracles always point us back to God and they draw us closer to him. And it shows us that he is always our miraculous provider. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here together today just to study your word and to learn more about who you are as our miraculous provider. 
Lord, just as you provided for the people that day with the five loaves and fishes, Lord, we know that you are our provider and that you continually guide us and you continually lead us. Lord, help us to trust in you more in whatever circumstances we're going through. Lord, you know them all. We know that we can trust you despite everything that's going on because you are a miraculous provider, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.